This is CS Book Club. You're listening to Understanding Computation. Today we're reading The Preface and Just Enough Ruby. My name is Justin Campbell. I'll be hosting, and I am a Ruby developer with no uh, computer science background or college education for that matter. Ashton? Hi, my name's Ashton. Uh, I'm a front-end developer. I specialize in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. I also do a lot of freelance web design on the side. My background is in digital art and multimedia design, and for the past four years, I've been brushing up my uh, dev and programming skills. Amy? Yeah, uh, so I am a Ruby developer. Uh, I'm really excited to read this book because, uh, like many of the people on this uh, call, I don't have much of any background in CS. I'm a history major and got into programming because it's a ton of fun and uh, because I was asked to do it and turned into a pretty good career. So I'm a freelancer currently uh, and looking forward to the rest of this podcast. And Brian. Hey, yeah, I'm Brian. Uh, I write a lot of Ruby and like to dabble in other languages occasionally. Um, I don't have a computer science background, but I have a bachelor's degree in mathematics, which is sort of related. And yeah, this book is seems really great. Seems like kind of a new take on something like SICP, which you hear a lot about. Yeah, that was kind of like one of the books I really wanted to read, but that seemed like a really large commitment. Um, yes. I had tried to read SICP before and didn't get too far. I know you've been reading it a lot recently. Um, I have, yeah. And, and just as a side note on that, if you are interested in SICP, definitely check out the lectures that are on YouTube because they're like really fun and they really stand up, even though they're like 30 years old. Those are the original yeah. MIT? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So can you give a little more background about what that is? What is SICP? Oh, sure. Yeah. So SICP stands for Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. And for a long time, it was the it was written by two professors at MIT, um, and they used it as their introductory computer science course. Um, and I think did they write Scheme and then like write the book on basically the book on Scheme? I think that's how it went. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it introduces just a lot of a lot of these ideas about computation, which I hope come through in this book too. Um, from the standpoint of learning a little bit of scheme, just enough scheme to get you going and thinking about that. Yeah, like over the past few years of like programming in Ruby, um, I had like heard things, computer science terms in the side, such as like the halting problem and like um, big O notation and um, P not equals NP, <laughs> uh, which I still don't know what that stands for, but I kind of understand <laughs> it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to like actually get a little more formal background on the technology that I use every day and like how it works. Yeah, the first paragraph of this book says, this book is for programmers who are curious about programming languages and the theory of computation, especially those who don't have a formal background in mathematics or computer science. So that is definitely me. Me as well. <laughs> and also like the next paragraph, it says, instead of complex notation, we'll use working code to illustrate theoretical ideas and turn them into interactive experiments that you can explore at your own pace. Um, yeah, I like the idea that like this is a book that, this book uses Ruby to showcase a lot of concepts. Um, but it, it's really just showing you enough Ruby to showcase those concepts and not this, this book is not intending to teach Ruby and, and the author even warns that the, the Ruby code probably is not very good Ruby code. Yeah. I mean, he also says you can practically translate any of the examples into just about any other modern programming language. So it, it seems like a really accessible book in that way. Hey, we should yeah. probably mention the, the author, Tom Stewart, um, and yeah, in future episodes, we'll maybe go a little bit more in detail about 
who he is. The book does emphasize that you should know at least one modern programming language. It says Ruby, Python, JavaScript, Java, or C Sharp would definitely help you for understanding what's going on in this book. Yeah, I definitely found that just skimming the uh, code examples uh, in the later chapters that while I can get it, and I think I could have understood it even with less Ruby than I know today, I would have a hard hard time explaining it to someone who doesn't really program or my father who knows Fortran. <laughs> um, is there anything else in the preface that we want to go over? Um, so the next, the first chapter is just enough Ruby. Um, and they talk about using IRB, like the reason that the author, one of the reasons that the author chose Ruby was because Ruby has a uh, REPL, which is a read eval print loop. It's a thing that lets you type in commands and see the results right away. Not all languages have that. Um, Ruby, Python, and JavaScript, if you're in a browser or a node, you can get mm -hmm. a REPL. But other languages like Java or C Sharp, you can't. Um, it's very hard to test code without compiling it and, and, and running a larger file. But with the REPL, you can just type in smaller expressions and, and see their output right away. So, yeah. yeah. I think as someone who programs in Ruby and programs rather large classes, uh, that was one of the most interesting things to see is just how much he is doing through the REPL. Uh, and how short the code snippets can be. So that was just something that popped out at me as something where I kind of had to readjust my expectations, where we are really looking at just barely enough Ruby to get at a concept. And you can do some interesting things in IRB. Yeah, I guess one of the important properties of Ruby is that, um, and it says this in the, val the section called values, that Ruby is an expression-oriented language. Every valid piece of code produces a value when it's executed. So for a read eval print loop or a REPL to work, you need to have something to return after you type in your, your command. Um, some things just return nil, but almost everything you type into Ruby, you know, creating a class, creating a method, will return something back. Which some people coming from a more JavaScript background may not be used to, as it doesn't necessarily require anything to be returned. Yeah, it actually kind of throws me off when I'm in the JavaScript console and I do like var x equals something, and then it says undefined. Mm -hmm. And I have to catch myself like, wait, what? Like, I thought I just defined variable. And you just have to call that variable again. Yeah. That's not related to this book at all. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then they go into like uh, procs, which I guess are... Or like anonymous functions or lambdas in other languages. So I guess it's probably like one of the more important building blocks for what they're going to showcase in a lot of this book. Um, so I guess when he said like any modern programming language, it's really like any language that you would support anonymous functions. I thought it was interesting that the first uh, method he defined was done in the where you define a method particular to an instance. You know, I thought that interesting too because I've never I don't do that in my day to day Ruby. Well, do you though? If you do like def self dot thing in a class that's true that, that is like a an object uh an instance of a class class <laughs> um but the same as class less than self which i know produces an eigenclass but i'm not sure if that's the same thing same result but yeah so yeah in ruby usually define methods inside of a class or a module context um but the author chose to show everybody hear my cat in the background <laughs> um <laughs> Just define the method like on the object itself, which actually kind of reminded me of um, JavaScript. Like mm -hmm. in JavaScript, you might create like a uh, 
uh, an empty object and then start defining methods on it and then return that entire object with all the, with all the functions on it to something else. So, so he mentions in his example that all the their top level objects called main. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're saying that you would normally put this on a class, that's basically namespacing it to something on the main property or on the main object. Uh, yeah, exactly. So like, so I I don't really think about main when I'm in Ruby, but I guess like Ruby evaluates everything just in order, like same same as JavaScript. So if you don't have, if you just have naked, you know, method definitions, you're defining things on the top level, uh, it, which which if, he's, yeah, which he's calling main. And yeah, I, if you were in the browser, it'd be window. Right. Exactly. Um. So yeah, if you, if you define a method not in a class or a module, then you're just defining it on on main, I suppose. Um, I thought it actually got. I guess main is an instance of kernel. I'm not actually sure. I should probably explain that a little bit. Yeah, I was I was reading this chapter and playing around with a lot of the examples because uh, this is a little bit different than how I usually write Ruby day to day. So me coming from not a Ruby background, there were a couple of things that just stood out to me as interesting. Um, one of the, you know, probably basic things for Ruby developers are the concept of symbols instead of variables. Um, one question I was curious about and not sure how much it will be involved in the book is the difference of, you know, using a symbol versus a variable string in Ruby. Yes, I I think a symbol is. Um, there's actually a quote in here which I. Yeah, they say it is uh, simpler and less memory intensive. Right. So a symbol is can be used the same way as a string to identify something by a name. But um, some things you want to do in a string are you know append to the end of it or make it uppercase or lowercase or reverse it. Like you would never do those things on a symbol. So that's what I think he meant by like lighter weight is that. It only supports creating it with a name, and then it stays there forever in in that form. So you can always use it to refer back to the same thing. Also, if you have like um, a bunch of objects in Ruby that all use a symbol with the same name, they're actually the same thing in memory. They're all pointing to the same exact object. There's only one symbol, even though you might see multiple copies in the code. Yeah, I think that's the main advantage and why he's saying less memory intensive. If you're doing a ton of hash manipulation, you end up with a lot of references to the same uh, same key, or you can, uh, and symbols take care of that. Plus, I think they just look pretty. <laughs> yeah, there's that too. You get used to seeing them. You know, I never thought about that. If you were iterating over something and you were using the same key over and over again, the way Ruby works with memory management, it would create and destroy the same string over and over and over again. You can get surprising performance improvements from eliminating that, by the way. I also saw, I think, um, I don't know what library it was in, but somebody had taken all of the strings. It was some, uh, I think it was part of Rack or some HTTP library. They had taken all the strings and put them into constants and froze them and saw like a pretty big improvement on uh, server performance. Wow. But if you're just starting out yes. <laughs> in, in, in Ruby, you <laughs> actually don't really need, you don't need symbols, but they are used a lot. The next version of JavaScript, ES6, I believe, has um, symbols as well. Although I, as far as I know, there's no literal for them, which means to make a symbol in ES6, you have to type new symbol and pass it a string. Hmm. Um, but I think it's to help with uh, memory leaks. I do love that the... Uh symbols in hashes just basically end up looking like json data 
Yeah, I've heard people refer to hashes as JSON blobs before. Mm -hmm. Well, that uh, that's lovely until you get to my office where there's still a discussion about whether we should really be using new hash syntax. <laughs> yes. Isn't it like four years old at this point? I know, right? But for some people, apparently, it just doesn't read right. <laughs> Hash rocket is a really cool term too. So like, I, yeah, I, can, that is. I can understand that yep. point of view. Yep. I mean, how many times in our lives are we going to get to say hash rocket if we weren't programming in Ruby and was it <laughs> I, Octothorpe if we weren't on Twitter? Right. Those are great points. We'll always have Tiddlywaka instead. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the pessimistic operator in a gem file. Um, so what else do we want to talk about in the Just Enough Ruby chapter? Um, do anybody have any comments on the classes and modules? Well, modules are somewhat unique to Ruby. Not unique, I guess, but it's a it's something that makes Ruby Ruby is the existence of something like a module. You know, they've called they've called it a module, which is kind of a generic term, but it means something a lot different than just like modular. So it kind of uh, supports multiple inheritance in a way, mm -hmm. where a class can mix in behavior from other modules instead of just the class that it inherits from. Right. And Amy, I think you were saying something. Oh, no, I was just going to say that as someone who uses modules day to day, it's really hard to say anything meaningful about them until you see modules done incorrectly and then you want to scream. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, J Justin, you were mentioning that you uh, can, you know, I guess you were saying you could append um, modules uh, from other objects. Are you speaking about like mon monkey patching? Uh, yeah, kind of. So if you had a class and you had a module and the module um, implemented some, some methods, you could include that module into a class and you would have those same methods in that class now. Mm -hmm. um, monkey patching makes me think of overwriting the method, which wouldn't happen because if your class implements the same method, it would win when Ruby goes to look up where that method comes from. In mm -hmm. um, newer versions of Ruby, there's a prepend instead of include. Uh, which I don't think it talks about in this chapter, but it does overwrite the method name in your class. Gotcha. So I guess the most similar thing in uh, JavaScript would be prototypes. Okay. And so you would kind of treat like an object that's already been created as a class and then make a new one of it? Yeah, it would be a prototypical inheritance, I guess is the term. So any prototype that you can create... Um, you can reference that from anywhere and then append it or manipulate it or reuse it. Um, the next section, miscellaneous features, um, there's a bunch of interesting things in here. One that I didn't start using for like a while when I started learning Ruby was, um, he calls it parallel assignment, um, but I might also call it like pattern matching or destructuring where you can assign multiple variables at the same time from like an array or list of things. So he has like width, height, depth equals 1,000, 250, 250. So it just copies those values into those names. That's like a cool trick that I've used since I learned it um, for a bunch of different uses. Yeah, that can be really handy, especially in blocks, which you get a little bit of, I think, later on in this section. Because, um, yeah, you can like do the same thing in a block to destructure what's being yielded to the block. And yeah. it just kind of eliminates a lot of uh, tedious array access. Yeah, if you had like an array of like two elements, instead of just saying each and then splitting up the array in the body of the block, you could instead 
um, put two arguments in the block arguments and it would do it for you. Uh, I like that he talks about inspect too because I thought that was really cool when I learned that in Ruby that whenever you're in IRB and you type things and then you see the result below, IRB is just calling inspect on the object that was returned. So if you're curious like how how that string gets formatted, it's from inspect. So if you wrote your own class and, wrote, and, and implemented inspect, you could change how it looks on the um, in, in IRB when the results are returned. Hmm. That can be handy too if you have a class with a lot of instance variables, which themselves have lots of instance variables. And by default, it all just kind of gets like barfed under the screen. Yeah. If you override inspect, you can make it both cleaner and, and much more informative. Variadic methods are kind of interesting in that you can just pass any number of arguments to it and it comes through as an array. Um, I guess you could do the same thing and just call it with an array and then not use that the asterisk operator, but it's kind of a neat feature. And then we get to blocks. I think my favorite section here is innumerable. I'm just a yeah, big I think... innumerable fan. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say innumerable... That's probably one of the most Googled things. If you looked at my browser history, any of the methods in Enumerable, I hit those a couple times a day usually. So what are enumerators or enumerables good for? Well, they help you handle things that you would normally be writing an iterator for. Uh, so I have the smallest amount of CS Java programming instructions, so when they have you write an enumerator, uh, an iterator over something, uh, enumerable basically takes anything that would reasonably have an iterator uh, and allows you to do things with that iterator. So you can uh, go over the entire, you can iterate over the whole thing looking for uh the item that matches a statement. So that'd be like a select. So if this item here equals three, then just give me that. You can map things, you can reduce things. Uh, you know, some of the examples here are like count. Um, yeah, I didn't know you but, could pass a block to count. I was really surprised by that. Yeah. So enumerable uh, sounds a lot like um, what you would call functional programming. I mean, uh, things you would use, like in JavaScript, you would use low dash or underscore to kind of have some of these methods um, plugged in, I guess, um, to be able to do kind of the same things. Right. Yeah, absolutely. This is like a gateway drug to functional programming, <laughs> yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I uh, definitely know the times when I have heard people just so unbelievably excited to be using, you know, Clojure, Haskell, whatever, you know, as much as I love Enumerable uh, and Ruby support for that, uh, I've heard that's where functional programming just blows you away when you're trying to transform uh, one set of data into another. Yeah, and I think that, like, learning that style of programming makes me think about, like, my programs in a different way. Um. Yeah, I think one of the nice things about enumerable is if you can get, if you can use one of these methods, you're usually taking out some control flow logic from your code. Exactly. You know, so yeah. you're no longer responsible for maintaining that if else statement, uh, which, you know, that's always a nice thing. It's one less thing that I have to test explicitly. So just relying on the language to do that is a great, great thing. I guess something that's come to mind is like in some languages, and I can't remember if I did this in PHP before, um, but you might start writing like a, or I know C does this a lot, 
where you might have like a for loop and you say like for i equals zero, i plus plus, i is less than the number of items in this thing. And then you'd go over each one and then you would do something and then maybe you'd add that element to another list that you want to basically filter mm-hmm. through the list and find something or maybe you're finding trying to find a specific thing. So these these methods that new rule implements allow you to do those things in a much, much cleaner way and more expressive because yeah. you're trying to say, I just want to select or filter this or I want to find this. And when you have like yeah. a for loop with those single letter variables and those other, the other syntax, you're not really saying what you mean. Yeah. It's also less brittle. You know, with those for loops, you should likely be testing your code with, you know, can it handle an empty something? Can you, can it handle one element? Can it handle a massive, uh, massive data set? And here you can just trust that it's going to perform the way the, uh, Ruby documentation says it's going to perform. Yeah. And you can also avoid like off by one errors. Yep. Now, do you think you can ever get in trouble in Ruby by using uh, any of these enumerable methods too heavily um, instead of, you know, uh, writing the underlying functions yourself and knowing the ins and outs of uh, what functions it's calling on the baseline? I'd say that you get into trouble when you don't necessarily understand what it's doing to get various things. So I've seen some bad code where you end up, someone ends up iterating over an array like five bazillion times because they're trying to do some sort of transfer transformation that matches Mm -hmm. uh, various parts of the array. Uh, And, you know, if you had to write it out, you would realize how really stupid that is and how non-performant yeah. that's going to be. Um, but for the code that we're going to see in this book, probably not. You know, if you're dealing with really large data sets, then sure, you should probably, uh, you should probably understand how Ruby is going to be iterating over your array. And yeah. sometimes it's really inefficient because it doesn't know any better. Um, it can't know any better. Uh, but by and large, there aren't any massive gotchas other than you should probably understand what you're doing. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I think something that comes to mind is um, I've gotten in trouble where I've iterated over a large collection, or I didn't know it was going to be a large collection, but it was coming from like a database or something. Um, and I didn't realize that I was making you know more calls than I was supposed to, or I was loading a lot of stuff in memory and just playing around with it. My development machine, it worked fine, but then when I got into like actual production data, it kind of fell over. Um, yeah, you don't want to load the entire user table into memory and then select over it, yeah, probably. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like, Justin, you mentioned earlier about uh, big O notation. Like, you should understand the complexity of uh, the method that you're calling. Yes. Yeah, I wish I understood that better. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like big O notation is uh, it's a useful concept to read about, but it's a little bit underwhelming when you <laughs> finally understand that it's just spend a lot of time thinking about how many actions you're asking the CPU to actually do. Yes. And, 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 so, and comparing that to how big your collection or data mm-hmm. set yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't think, you know, anything we're talking about, you know, if we talk about big O notation, it's nothing big and scary. It's more just making sure that you're doing something you're not doing something five bazillion times when you yes. could do it too yeah yeah and, and if uh if you have a hundred things and then you yeah. are um doing a hundred things with those hundred items then that is o of n i believe right because 
mm-hmm. you're saying the number of things you have is how many how much work you're doing. Yeah, so, you know, if you have a hundred marbles and you're trying to count them, and if you have to count them one by one, that's O of N. And O of N is bad because if you get a billion marbles, you're going to be here until you most likely die. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, again, for most of the stuff we're doing here, we're not going to be talking about data sets of a billion. We're going to be talking about data sets of, you know, maybe 10, however many you feel like typing in, yes. <laughs> which for me is going to be very few. <laughs> I max out at three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is- I am I am not a very good QAer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so next, uh, he goes into struct, um, and struct is just like a nice, for me at least, like a nice shorthand where to write a class that like you, you create with arguments and then you can, um, give names to those arguments so that you can then, like if you make a, make a person.new and pass in Justin, and then maybe Justin is the name, then you can say person.name and get Justin back later. Um, if that's all you're doing with the class, struct can save a lot of code. Yeah, it can also be helpful for like value objects where you want them to be equal based on their values hmm. and not based on their like object ID. I think it implements whatever methods are needed to make that happen. That's interesting. So you could use a struct to compare multiple things together like as a whole. You could use them as like hash keys, for instance. Okay. But then we get into monkey patching. And that's like I feel like a lot of people dismiss Ruby after a while just based on the existence of monkey patching. <laughs> do, do you feel that? Anybody else feel that? Anybody else heard that? Like people are like, I don't like Ruby at that monkey patching. It, it can be hard if you're not, um, I don't want to say the word discipline because that sounds too strong. Um, it makes it easy to shoot yourself in the foot. Um, so or for just, somebody to shoot you in the foot. Yeah, so just just use version control and <laughs> <laughs> try, to, try to save your work and go back to... Audit your dependencies. Yes, maybe. So can think... you... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, why don't you ask your question, Ashley, first, and then I'll, uh, I'll make my point a little bit later. So, I, no, I was just curious if you could elaborate a little bit on what you think the dangers or the misconceptions are on monkey patching. Is it that, um, so someone creates a, uh, function and then they add it to your class without you realizing, or is it? Yeah, it, it could be that, like, you could include a module that, you know, changes some of your, some of your methods or, um. Or, or they can actually like freely read redef- somebody else's code could redefine things in your code if if you load that code in. Um, it doesn't tend to be a problem in practice. Uh, go ahead, Amy. Yeah. Uh, so an example of someone doing something truly malicious is that let's say you include a uh, include a library, and my understanding is that monkey through monkey patching, you could overwrite you know object equals you know something like that. Uh, does that sound about right to everybody else? Yeah, like yeah, like one of my favorite examples yeah. is um to they, they talk about this too with adding and, and methods is that you know the plus operator is just a method on a mm-hmm. um, fixed num class and make an integer so you can actually redefine addition to subtract instead and then you do one plus one and it's at zero. <laughs> um, so so Ruby supports whenever you when you write code in Ruby you and you create a class or you you write a class keyword or a module keyword or a def you are opening that thing up and defining that thing right there and in the instance of a class or a module you're actually appending to it and creating it for the first time it doesn't exist yet 
So you could create a person class in one file and then reopen that person class in another file and add more behavior to it. Mm -hmm. So it just it, it can just be kind of tricky to not tricky, but if you're not disciplined about like where you're putting your code and and how much code there is, I guess in my, in my mind, um, you just want to make sure that you know what where things are coming from and and you're not having unexpected behaviors. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the things I've heard uh, among people who. I trust and who really do like Ruby, but who get frustrated with monkey patching and some of these things is that it's really hard in Ruby to tell where that the method that you're calling, where that's defined. And there are other languages where you know where that code is coming from. But, you know, if you're an IRB, you are trying to debug, uh, you know, even a basic web application, your stack's going to be pretty damn deep. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be hard for you to tell. It can be hard for you to tell what is actually defining that method that you're calling. Yeah, there, there is a, um, there's a method called method. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you can call method... Um, I think of an example that would happen globally. Um, but if you, if you had like a person class and then you said person.new and then you said dot method uh, and passed it a name symbol, it would return to you a method object. And that method object has a method on it called source location. So you can do like method, pass it a symbol, then say dot source location, and it will show you where that method is defined in the file and the line number. Um, mm -hmm. That's helped me a couple times. And there's also, also debugging libraries such as pry. Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. Pry has a command called ls, which is just like listing files in Unix and ls. Um, and you can ls an object and it will show you what methods are defined from what classes that this thing inherits from or, or modules. Um, but that's usually in uh, my own code or my team's code. Um, but it can still be kind of tricky to find out where, you know, deeper things are coming from, like parts of Rails or other frameworks you're using or libraries. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely within your own code, there are a lot of things you can do uh, and a lot of debugging that makes it a little bit easier to find things out, certainly. One well, nice now thing I'm about... going to... No, go oh, ahead. Sorry, go... Well, I was going to say, one nice thing about monkey patching is that it does make it, does make it really easy to show by example. Uh, you can say, well, if the string, like in the, in the book, he adds the shout method to the string, so you can say, like, hello world.shout, and then it turns it into an uppercase string and appends three exclamation points. <laughs> you can, if you're demoing code or, or just, you know, kind of brainstorming, you can say, well, what if the string class had this method? It's very easy to just kind of, and that's something that is nice about Ruby in general, is that you can kind of play around very liberally with the system. And then I think as Justin was saying, you have to be responsible about when you do that. Yeah, and uh, monkey patching usually refers to, in my, in my experience at least, like when you actually change core um, types like string and, and fixed num or, or hash. Um, but that can be really useful, especially like Rails and Active Support does a lot of monkey patching on um, one thing that comes to mind is like a hash. There's You might get a hash of um, symbols, so you might want to call like stringify keys and it will change all of your your sim your hashes keys from symbols to strings or ensure that they're all strings so you can do things like that or, or like even the shout thing is pretty a pretty good example um there are some methods you can add the string that like do you know uppercase lowercase camel case but also like could maybe support some kind of you know naming semantics in your organization or your, or your product that you might find really useful yeah, I think there are definitely situations where monkey patching maybe even be the only way to go if you're 
dependent on a library and the maintainer has disappeared and there's a bug. Yeah. You know, right. monkey monkey patching is is the way to go in that in that situation. All right. So for the last section it's um about constants. Um and a constant is just any variable name in Ruby that starts with an uppercase letter, uh, including class and module names. So, you know, in an example here, it says class greetings. Greeting is actually a constant, too, that, that points to the class that was created. And um, one property of constants is, like the name suggests, that if you change them, uh, Ruby is also liberal in this way, where it will let you change it. But in most cases, it will warn you that it's changing it. So if you say pi is 3.14, you know, capital P, capital I... Uh, and then you change pi to be 2, it will let you do that, but it will say, hey, I'm doing this. Um, I did not know you could remove constants. <laughs> so that was interesting to see that example too. Um, and apparently remove const is a private method on objects, so you need to use the send method to actually get that to happen. That was one thing that I liked about his discussion of objects and object-oriented programming. And I guess... This is maybe a Ruby thing, but emphasizing sending messages that when you say foo.bar, you're sending the bar message. And then you see that again with invoking a private method on an object, you send remove const. I, I think that's a, nice, that's a nice way to think about the whole system as just sending stuff around. Yeah, it does kind of simplify your mental model of like how everything's working. Like almost everything you see in Ruby is just a method being sent, a message being sent to another object. Mm-hmm. So Ashton, as somebody relatively new to Ruby, after reading this chapter, do you have any thoughts on Ruby as a language? Um, well, basically, um, so as you guys were just mentioning about messages, um, it was a new concept that I hadn't really thought of before. I think they give an example of um, just doing something as simple as one plus, one plus two, then one sends the message of the plus two, two as a parameter, or I'm, I may be saying that wrong, but um, it's just something that I don't normally don't think about. As you said, you know, the mental model, um, but I think playing with it more, it'll be something that I grow to understand. Um, gotcha. Yeah. I mean, there are so many similarities between this and JavaScript that I immediately made, you know, connections to. I mean, they have struct, whereas JavaScript would have a constructor, a constructor. Um, so it's, I, I think, you know, all of these programming languages have their, uh, you know, similarities and differences, but all in all, if you understand um, what you're trying to accomplish, from there, a lot of it is just syntax. Yeah, that's a good point. It's all just syntax. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I guess that's pretty much it. Anything, any other thoughts on Just Enough Ruby or the book? I don't have any. <laughs> Next up is forward. programs and machines. Yeah. Looking forward to reading more. Yeah, me too. All right, cool. So, um, Okay, great. So yeah, um, next episode will be on programs and machines. Uh, this podcast, um, you can find the show notes for this podcast at csbookclub.com slash understanding dash computation. Uh, and we're also on Twitter at cs underscore book club. And hope to see you next time. Thanks.